Well, those are two really good sessions. I, um, it just wasn't for the rest of the world. We could sit around here till about 8 p.m. and just keep going, wouldn't it? Wouldn't that be great to just keep uh, considering these things? So helpful. Uh, James, thank you. Thank you for your service to us. And I just want to jump in here uh, briefly and, and add a little different direction, a little different take that sort of uh, synchronizes with what we've been discussing, I hope can be helpful to us. But uh, many years ago in evangelistic endeavor, I was walking through a park at the University of Minnesota looking to engage someone, and I found uh, a young man shooting baskets all by himself out there in the park. And I, I sized him up, and I thought, I think I can pretty much figure out this this young man's life. And so I, I went and introduced myself, started talking and shooting baskets and started talking to him. And I asked him fairly soon, I said, uh, do you live with your father? And he got really quiet and kind of hung his head and said, no. And I said, do you have any relationship with your father? And he said, no. And it just really opened a door of opportunity to talk to him about God as Father and how we can know him through the sacrifice of his son. And it, it was just a, a connection point right there for that young man in that moment. But what unspeakable joy it is to us to know God as our Father, to have a relationship with him, Abba, Father, what a wonderful joy it is for us to be able to proclaim that truth as well in a world that is really bent against the very concept of fatherhood. I appreciate that, that idea that the Bible is heterosexual. It is, uh, it is oriented toward fatherhood from start to finish. And as we consider that thought, I want us to consider in some sense that we are right now in what seems to be an away game when it comes to emphasizing such things. To the degree this aversion to fatherhood is pressed, it comprises a serious assault against knowing and loving God, who we know as our Father. And this in turn complicates our task as pastors, as ministries, as we relate to a world along these lines. Uh, in an attempt to just strengthen our resolve to this end, that's all I'm striving to do, and I can't come up with a title, but this is what I came up with. It's a little complicated, but the fatherhood of God, the feminization of society, as we calibrate pastoral ministry in a sexually confused world, I'm not going to jump on to what Dr. Anderson's covering here, but just uh, looking at it from a different angle. I think this is a worthy consideration for us, particularly as church leaders. But just noting, first of all, the revelation of God as Father and to revel in that for a few moments and uh, be thankful for what God has done this way as we consider the creation of male and female in God's image. We've already considered that here just a few moments ago. But remembering what God has revealed there, that so I'm, I want to, in a sense, keep us on track and preface everything by saying that we understand that God has created us as male and female in this binary sense. No man or woman is closer to God or possesses superior worth by virtue of his or her sexual identity. 
doesn't get us any closer to God, any nearer to Him one way or the other. But further, we, have, we must also affirm that male-female differentiation is not a social construct that is open to deconstruction. The distinction of male and female is a necessary aspect of God's creative design. It is indeed a gift. It is His blessing upon us. So we must move forward on both and grounds. Men and women are both equally created in the image of God and they are also with distinct stewardships. They, are, they possess distinct stewardships. So having staked that vital truth then, it's interesting to chase the progress of revelation concerning God as Father. We can't do that at any length today. But the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament is largely a theocratic idea. That is, God fathers Israel. He is the founder, the creator, the preserver of his holy nation. So we see this emphasis coming out in Exodus chapter 4. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. Let Israel go. Let the nation go. But I am this nation's father. And if you refuse to let me go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Or Deuteronomy 32.6 Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, who established you? This uh, idea could be paralleled with a number of other texts. But having said this, we don't mean to say that there's no sense of fatherly love and care in the Old Testament, that it's just this kind of he fathered the nation. There are indications of his compassion for his people. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So this theme certainly comes out. But as we move into the New Testament, the incarnation of Christ opens a door to our relationship with God as Father in a way that was not in some sense possible before that time. God as Father then does not start with Israel and His relationship with Israel, but God the Father is really grounded in the ultimate eternal Trinitarian joy of the relationship of Father and Son that is there. And it is in then the incarnation and the coming of the Son who is able then to exegete to us what fatherhood is and draws us in a mysterious way into the flow of love, this Trinitarian relationship. And as we then know God as Father, we are drawn into this relationship. We see this in John Chapter 17, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. So Christ has come to reveal this name, to reveal God the Father, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I don't know that we'll ever plumb the depths of that simple statement. But there is, in the coming of Christ, a relationship with God as our Father where we can say, Abba, Father. There is, there is a, a, a loving connection and relationship there. And as Paul writes to the Romans, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons 
by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the presence of the Spirit within us, crying out to God our Father and knowing this is made possible for us in the death, the substitutionary death and the vicarious resurrection of our Savior. So the fatherhood of God is no off-the-cuff analogy, but it draws us through salvation into Trinitarian delights. Let that settle upon you for a while. God is my Father. I delight in Him. I know Him through Christ in this unique way. Now, brief excursus here. In the face of such wonders, there are some who have even been taught and coached to bemoan the fact that I really can't know God because of my failed father. My father was a a drunk, a deadbeat dad. He didn't care for me, and so I really struggled to think of God as my father. Or my father abandoned me and my mother, and I've never forgotten it. Or he abused me horrifically. And when we consider these things, we must not dismiss them. These are pains that go deep into the human soul. We don't want to dismiss the suffering that's there and can be experienced at the hand of fathers uniquely. In fact, we might even say that in some sense. But may we never pin the blame of our tepid love for God upon some failed human being. We can't do that either. So to push back in just one direction, it could, we could develop this for a long time, but to push back in just one direction, the Bible also reveals God as king and God as, think of it, master, God as shepherd, God as judge, God as counselor. Does anyone imagine the biblical writers thought of any of these analogies as predicated on the ideal behavior of the office holder? I don't think when Paul was thinking of an analogy and thought of speaking of Christ as our king that he thought that Nero is a pretty good example of what it means to be a king. Uh, Everyone knew the time of Christ that shepherds could not be trusted. We understand that their uh, testimony in courts of law was just thrown out because they were just known to be cheaters and liars, and yet Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Yet, the emphasis falls on good, does it not? And so with God as our Father, let's, as we counsel, as we work with people, I think we need to be cautious there because there is deep pain that many have suffered at the hands of a father, and we need to take that into account. But let's guide them and steer them forward to say, this is a father like none other. You have two fathers. There is one. Every believer has two fathers. One was not perfect, and the other is. And we should never look at the perfections of the one through the imperfections of the other. So back to the point, but just as a quick excursus there, it's significant that God reveals himself as Father. And I think that what we need to do in our day, which pushes against us, we'll get to that in a moment, but it's to really tap deeply into this idea and know that we have truth here and we have hope here that the world very much needs and in which we should be nurturing our own joy and delight as we honor him as our Father. What does it mean? Here we could go through a long series of uh, lectures, in fact, uh, but I'm just going to give you the headlines the, uh, the uh, major points, but it, it speaks of responsible headship. So taking this concept of fatherhood through the Bible, 
we see certain themes that rise, and I don't know by any means that this is this is complete, uh, but but I but I think these themes you can see fairly easily arising. That it, it speaks of responsible headship, not just headship as a position, but as a relationship, an active relationship. Uh, with others. There is energetic and gracious provision that is involved in God's fatherhood. There is loyal and courageous protection. There is a sense of training in wisdom. Fatherly love trains. It, It passes on wisdom to the beloved, to the child, to the son particularly here. There is an administration of discipline as well. Fatherly love corrects, and it brings discipline to uh, the son. There is effectual communication. By this, I don't mean just yelling ideas, but effectual communication, which involves not only speech, and and here is what I have to say, but also listening and and hearing what uh, the child has to say. And then there is self-sacrificial love. I think you could supply text here just in your own mind and uh, with your own remembrance of passages where God reveals this about himself, where he calls earthly fathers to these ideas. And when we think of paternity, this is how we conceive it. As the redeemed of the Lord, we see it in this sanctified way. We see it in this holy light. This is what fatherhood means. This is what paternity is. Something like this list. They're glorious truths, and we rejoice in them. We celebrate them as churches. We teach them to our children. But we also need to recognize that not everyone rejoices with us. Uh, It is, as I said, an away game in many ways along these lines. The biblical revelation of God as Father led one feminist to snap, God is male, therefore male is God. That kind of epitomizes what what we take here as a source of joy. So many take as a source of, of toxic abuse. God is male, therefore male is God. Well, God is spirit, as has been brought up in a previous session here. Of course, we know that He's not male in that sense, and that's not the point of it. But we are. Uh, are but I wonder, though, do we cower at these kinds of ideas? Do we sheepishly? avoid masculine language with which Scripture describes God to us. We should not do so if we remember that there are reasons that God reveals Himself as Father and that He has revealed Christ to us as Son. That that sense of drawing back and sheepishness, I think there's a way in which we can go too far the other way as if we're throwing it in people's face. But I think that sense of cowering and pulling back and not emphasizing this is a wrong direction. We'll return to some of that uh, just as we have time briefly with uh, some application. But as we've looked at the revelation of God as Father, we look secondly at the feminist assault on heterosexual fatherhood. I think, and I, I know this group fairly well, and I just don't think we run around wearing this on our sleeve, that we worry about this assault or that we're bitter about it or we're attacking it in negative ways. But I think one of the, one of the downsides of that is sometimes we don't really understand what's going on. 
we love people, we love them wherever they are, they're sinful, and we sort of just kind of move toward them in that way. But I do think that from time to time it's wise for us to consider the away ballpark. Uh, we're not in the home ballpark, we're in the away ballpark, and it has some strange outfield walls and some strange corners, and we've got to get to understand them and figure out how to play here. And so I'm, I'm saying these things on a couple levels, the first, not, to, not to beat up, but simply to look at the reality of what the feminist agenda is and how it relates to our understanding of God as Father and to many aspects of sexuality. Let me say, secondly, I've done a, a fair amount of reading. I'm no scholar on these things by any means, but I haven't just you know, made these things up. I've looked for quite a while, read some things about what the feminist agenda is, and I'm seeking to... I would love if there was a radical feminist sitting here, she'd say, yeah, that's about right. Yep, that's what we believe. That's, that's what I'm trying to do here. I may miss on some level, but I'm taking this from, from their writings, from those who have filtered these things, and just trying to lay out so that we can kind of understand where they're coming from. That's a little bit of a uh, heads up. Uh, let me first start with... with I'm just going to give several ideas here that kind of collect... Uh, our thoughts under this assault. So this isn't particularly related to feminists. That'll be in our next point. But uh, first of all, the sexual revolution. Uh, James uh, referenced that here, the sexual revolution of the 1960s. Gentlemen, it was a thing, okay? It really was a thing. Uh, and if, if you're 60 years or younger, I think it's really hard for us to really grasp what was going on there. But if you read some reports and some of the history of what took place in this country in the 1960s, I mean, it makes your skin crawl. It's, it's, it was unbelievable what was happening and how uh, authority was being challenged and ideas that had been conceived as truth for many generations were being thrown off radically. The trends that led to the sexual revolution of the 60s were entrenched well before that. But I think it seems that World War II kind of held things together. But the 40s and the 50s, these ideas were there. You can find them in the literature. Uh, but it was the end of World War II, the proliferation of technology, unprecedented gains in affluence. And then there was the accelerant of the Vietnam War. And those things all coming together, there was something going on that was much larger than one generation. It was a, it was a roiling situation that was about to explode, and it did explode in the 1960s. Under this assault, sexual mores in particular were cast off with alarming speed. And I don't have the expertise to know how the feminist agenda relates to all of the sexual revolution of the 1960s, but we can know it was right at the center and the heart of this uh, radical experience. And let me now lay out from what I've gathered from their thinking, their understanding, and think of it from our angle as we worship and love our Heavenly Father and as we seek to establish families, as the text in the previous session we've seen from Genesis would indicate in, in the directions there. Think of these ideas. Here, here's the basic uh, tenets of feminist ideology. Now, and I'm saying radical feminist ideology, those that have driven the movement, there's all kinds of more moderate people than these. But if you get to the heart of it, to what those that really have a 
thoroughgoing uh, theology and sense of original sin from their perspective, this is what they're saying. The evils of the world are rooted in patriarchy and male dominion. This is what all the trouble is. This is the sin that has to be eradicated and from which we must be saved. Secondly, sexual distinctions result from social conditioning under male dominion. Liberation for women will remain unrealized until society is conditioned to see men and women as essentially the same. I think they'd love to remove the word essentially, but they can't. There, there's a bit of a qualifier there due to our biological makeup that, that, that cannot be uh, missed. But uh, the, the idea is as far as is possible to see men and women uh, as the same. Thirdly, homosexual marriage is the fundamental incubator in which patriarchal power and male supremacy are bred, resulting in the systemic domination, oppression, exploitation, and degradation of women. Let that filter in for a moment. But 1970, Ms. Magazine editor Robin Morgan she said this, we can't destroy the inequities between men and women until we destroy marriage. Just in case you wonder where she stood. Uh, it's pretty, pretty blunt, isn't it? Sheila Cronin, then head of National Organization of Women in 1973, said, freedom for women cannot be won without the abolition of marriage. Feminist Linda Gordon, 1969, a journal essay said, the nuclear family must be destroyed. I said earlier, we have many, and I think probably far more moderate feminists, confused feminists on a lot of levels, that, that aren't going to say something like that. They have a mom and a dad, a lot of them. They're not going to come out leading with this kind of a line that we've got to destroy marriage. What we need to understand is the, the influence that is there, the trickle-down effect of, in some sense of how people think, how they perceive the world. And you will, you will find many moderate feminists fighting for ideas, having no idea these things have been said. But again, I, I'm quoting from the 70s and the 60s because this is when in the sexual revolution these things were said quite openly. It's just not as open today. There, there's a different way of presenting the feminist agenda. What is that? I mean, we, we give a lot of different ideas, but one is the protection of children. So they're, they're going to look at it as the protection of children, but the, but the ideology behind it remains the same. It has it come out of this well. Um, number four, heterosexual marriage creates a wall of privacy behind which husbands oppress their wives and fathers groom their sons to one day oppress women while raising their daughters to submit to the oppression of men. This is their view of the home, which kind of correlates to why they want to see it destroyed. Um, by the way, we could say this on all of these points, I suppose, but actually the opposite is true. Uh, a father in the home teaches a son to control aggression. And if we want to know what happens when that teaching is not there, uh, we look to inner city gangs, well, urban or rural gangs as well, I suppose. But uh, th that's where uh, uh, 
such behavior is taught and, of course, becomes very violent. I had a, I, I talked to a, the father of a boxer, an amateur boxer, one day, and we kind of got into the, this violent sport. I mean, I don't get it. Why somebody's swinging at my head? It's just never appealed to me, you know. But but I'm trying to understand this of how 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 he deals with the violence of this sport. And now this is amateur boxing, of course, and I don't know if this man's right, but it was really interesting what he said. He said, oh, no. He said, if you're teaching your son to hurt somebody, he'll get hurt. Boxing is control of aggression. It's not just going out there and doing everything you can to waste the guy, but you teach how to keep your aggression under control to win uh, the, the boxing match. Well... Perhaps an illustration for us in some sense, but there, there, there is, uh, it's in control that aggression can be minimized and can be directed in right ways. But without that teaching, uh, the wheels come off. In response to these preceding points, point number five, women will never achieve liberation until they free themselves from dependence on husbands. Therefore, homosexual women heterosexual women, must find employment outside the oppressive and discriminating environment of the traditional home. If they do not, they consign themselves to a life of dependency and drudgery, rejecting a life of self-determining freedom. Betty Friedan, a a known radical feminist, well-known, said, no woman should be authorized to stay at home and raise her children. No woman should be authorized, that's a scary word, to stay at home and raise her children. Women should not have that choice, she says. Now, again, your, your average feminist is not going to say those kinds of things, doesn't believe those kinds of things. But this is what is behind the uh, assault. Number six, no-fault divorce is an invaluable tool of liberation for women. On the personal level, it frees a woman from the dominion of a man. On the societal level, it delivers a blow to the institution which propagates the oppression of women. Let's go back to 1919, just for a moment. I'm looking just at this nation, of course. But societal expectation was strong that a couple with children must protect them and provide for them. That's your job. You got together, you had this child, you take care of this child. Your child, your children are your children. It's nothing hard to figure out about this. I'm talking like I'm in 1919 maybe. I don't know. But the, uh, don't even think of foisting them on me and making us pay in welfare to take care of your child. That's your job. And so their marriage contracts would be legally binding, truly so, and the good of society at large trumped personal feelings. The two of you aren't getting along? Figure it out. Because you're not getting out of this marriage because you're not putting your children's care on me as a taxpayer, on us as a community. You guys get it figured out. Now, we understand all kinds of suffering that took place in that type of thinking, of course. But if a mother ran off with another man or a father drank away his earnings and failed to feed his children, he was harming the children. Everybody knew that 
and communally there could be some ways to adjust to that. But the emphasis fell on the fact that leaving one another, separating, divorcing, you're harming the society. You can harm this child, we don't like that, but you're going to harm the whole society if you break this marriage covenant. You have to stay together. There are many unhappy marriages, but there was also far less welfare that went out to caring for children. Let's jump to the 1960s. The social revolution paved the way for a fundamental shift in thinking, not only about marriage, but more fundamentally about law. In the past, the law of the land, this is oversimplified to some degree, but the law of the land provided in part the protection of the individual from the crushing power of institutions and the state. If we do not enact appropriate laws, the government can crush the individual. So enact those laws. But in the sexual revolution, a shift took place philosophically. Radical individualism led to institutions and governments fairly genuflecting to the rights of the individual. The individual became all-important in uh, theory. With this shift in philosophy, litigation has become a weapon in the hand of individuals. And we now, as a society, demonstrate unimaginable willingness to defend the perceived rights of the one at the considerable cost of the many. I might just use one brief example, but you've got this rural football team that since anyone can remember who's alive, there was a prayer before the football game on Friday night. One student steps forward and says, that violates my rights. I don't feel comfortable with that. And it's amazing to watch how far the culture will jump to accommodate that one individual. That's all brand new. Maybe not, but that it's very recent in, historically. In the past, that would be, I'm sorry that's offensive to you. Maybe you could just come after the prayer. You know, maybe um, maybe you could just kind of you know plug your ears. And we love you. You're part of our community. We appreciate that you're here. But we've been doing this for generations, and we mean no offense to you. That's now it's litigation. Lawyers get involved. Changes are made, and the many kowtow to the individual. This is a, a, a just just as an example. Um, by the way. I'm getting these ideas largely from Philip Howard, Life Without Lawyers, 2009. It's a fantastic book in that it just lays a lot of things out that you knew but couldn't figure out. Uh, Philip Howard, Life Without Lawyers. But 1969, moving away from that, uh, the governor of California, Ronald Reagan, signed into law the so-called no-fault divorce law. One could divorce from this point forward one could divorce his or her mate without establishing any criminal wrongdoing on the part of the mate. And statistically speaking, the majority of divorces are filed by women, and the the number one and two answers as to why is growing apart and irreconcilable differences. So what it was saying, in other words, is now we have relational problems, we can end the marriage, even if the other partner has no interest in it. And coupled with this philosophical shift in the application of law, 
divorces now are as easy to obtain as a lottery ticket. The outcome is that a woman can now divorce her husband against his will, legally restrict his relationship to his children, garner his wages, and really end his life as an influence upon her and her children to any significant degree. No-fault divorces become the most direct and destructive force against patriarchy and the crowning achievement many assert of the feminist movement. This is where we have really made progress, the radical feminists would say. Any woman can end a relationship with her husband, and going back to what they think about the home, you can see why they would want that to be the case. Well, that leads, obviously, logically, uh, to fatherless households and state intervention. This is utterly obvious because fathers are not taking care of children. They're not paying for children. They're, they, are, they, they, they can have their wages garnished to be paying child support and the like, but there's all kinds of trouble with that. In fact, as many as are paying support, we have just about as much trouble, trouble with those who don't and then are put in jail until they do or whatever they work out, but then they're on the tax uh, payer uh, care list as well. But this is a, an alarming chart of the percentage of out-of-wedlock births, 3% in 1920. In the, at the cusp of the sexual revolution, that moved up to, <clears throat> forget the percentage, the numbers over there on the left, but... Uh, that moved up to 5% in 1960. And then, uh, 19, I'm going on these, I didn't write these numbers down, I'm going on memory. It's 5% in 1960, 1970 was 11%, 1980 was 18%, 1990 was 30%. And in, 19, or in 2014, the last statistic that I found, 40%. So we're looking at a massive number of young people being brought into this society who are born into a fatherless situation. Of course, sometimes their fathers are living with them. There's all kinds of variations on the ground level. But uh, we also have, I mean, you put together the, the Muslim piece in this and the like, where there are more, at least, intact families uh, it, it's really an alarming uh, percentage. And, of course, it creates a massive problem. This is where, I mean, we don't even think of it. I, it just it just is for us in this day. You go back to 1950, it wasn't the case. But today, we're just live with welfare, daycare, early child, early kindergarten, after-school programs and activities, health insurance that's subsidized, subsidized housing, employment quotas, gender norming, police uh, involvement in all of this. Uh, of course, there's abortion that plays into it as well, but foster care and child psychologists and family counseling and family courts and lawyers and judges and juvenile courts and fast foods, for that matter. Here, we, we don't have time to make a, a meal, but we can throw this at you. I mean, it just, it just it's piled up. There was, I, I read one of these books, I don't remember, some book I was reading, but one, one of the lawyers was saying that, take away divorce and my livelihood is gone. And it, it didn't even bother him to say it. I mean, he's just saying, I live off of divorce. 
And many, many people do. Their very employment is dependent upon this system. How do households led by single moms fare without fathers? It's just a dirty secret, and it's kept a dirty secret. There are certainly many stories of grace, and there are many stories of grit. I love the stories of grit because you usually find them on a, on a football game or something, or a basketball game or something, and, and you just see that this kid that grew up in this really tough neighborhood, no father like everybody else, but he had a mom that sat on him and made him de- develop some discipline. There's a lot of stories like that among some of the elite athletes. They come from these these urban areas where there's great meltdown, but they had a mom who was just different, and she made life hard on them and, and, and disciplined them. But for the most part, there is a clear statistical correspondence between fatherless homes and higher rates of juvenile crime, family poverty, substance abuse, truancy, educational failure, and of course the need for welfare. But there is a loss that is even greater than all of these for children. Allow me to meander my way there for just a few moments, but this to get to this greater loss. But let me start saying this. The essential reason for marriage is not procreation. Procreation is absolutely essential to marriage. It's God's gift. It's right. I understand all that. But a single woman can bear a child, and married couples can remain infertile. So theologically speaking, we say the reason for marriage is to form a new headship which covenants to image the love of Christ for his church and the submission of the church to Christ to indeed bear children who will continue on in the love of God by his grace. But socially speaking, the reason for marriage is to establish fatherhood. The mother's relationship to a child is crystal clear at least for five to six months in most cases. It just is really obvious this is the mother. But how does the relationship of a father to his child become legally established? It must be legally established, and that is by a covenant of marriage. This is why so-called same-sex marriages are an assault on fatherhood. A lesbian couple, there is no man needed for us. We don't need a man. We don't need fathers. For a gay couple, they cannot establish paternity, but must raise other fathers' children who have probably been promiscuous on some level. Not always, but it's often the case. The marriage binds children to their fathers, and children need fathers. As Thomas Hobbes claimed, married fatherhood is the most powerful force in moving a society from chaos to civilization. And if that's the case then we're moving pretty quickly from civilization to chaos. And there we pick up now our third thread, and that is ministry in the local church. Just a few thoughts, nothing profound here I'd like to talk about a lot longer and for us to share ideas together on this. But um, to single moms and fatherless children in this culture and the world we live in, Statistics indicate now that less than half of high school seniors in the U.S. will graduate with both of their biological parents in the home. Less than half. And it's just that statistic alone is just a reminder that we minister in a world where more and more people who darken the doorways of our churches 
will have little or no meaningful experience of a healthy, fatherly influence and care in their life. This says nothing about those who had a father that they lived with until they left the home and was a miserable relationship. This is the majority of graduating seniors in high school that will not live with one of their parents by the time they graduate. It's it's, It's stunning. But what is more concerning is that many of them will have suffered profoundly from this deprivation, yet will be indoctrinated in the sense that they do not need fatherly involvement. There is no such need. This will not keep them out of the kingdom of our sovereign God, of course. But it will mean that our ministries must take this into account and we need to labor to apply the gospel wisely and winsomely to people in such context. And here's where we need to think carefully about the application of the gospel to those who come in our midst and how we calibrate our ministries to aid and supply what is going to be more and more lacking in the days ahead. It will take, I think, certainly a unique investment of time. This is by going back to that 1919 setting. You're the dad of this kid. You take care of him. Spend the time with him. That's your job to do that. Let time's not being spent with massive numbers of young people today. And so time's going to have to be spent. It is going to call upon our time investment. I think it will call upon the women of the church to embrace those who are fatherless and those who are without husbands in a unique way. A unique way of grace, a unique way of time commitment, a, a unique orientation to them of love. And probably, in many respects, steering these women to men in the best sense of the word, but helping them to recognize, I need fathers. I need spiritual fathers in the church. I've not sought counsel from my father. I've not had a husband. Or I have gotten rid of my husband who is absolutely worthless. I hated the guy, despised the guy. There's so many deep issues that have to be dealt with there of bitterness, of hatred, but also of just not recognizing the place that men can have in loving Uh, women and children. We need patience and love here. And I I think we certainly want to avoid, do you not? uh, Do we not want to avoid becoming churches where just all of our families are intact, husband, wife, families raising their children? I I think that ought to be in most cases, in most settings, uh, the majority, of course, but we also want to know, we, we need to know that there are so many others that don't fit that model and to reach out and draw them in to the context of our assembly. How strategically situated is the New Testament church in such a world? We don't look at this and say, woe is us, all is lost, the world has gone uh, crazy, and we're glad we're not part of it. Not at all. We are strategically situated by Christ in this situation to say, I want to introduce you to God who is Father. You can know Him. And no matter what you've experienced, what you've faced, He will embrace you as His child through His Son and His sacrifice. We're we're entrusted with this message about a God whose fatherly love provides the answer for the weight of sin. 
His fatherly care is a balm for troubled souls. We've turned to all sorts of idols to salve the pain and help us, allow us to help you see God as Father. I think then down another line, this needs to affect the way in which we preach God's Word, that we need to preach God's Word faithfully. And I, I just want to add, I'm, I'm sure preaching to the choir here in some sense, but we need to keep speaking these truths to one another, brothers, and, and to remind ourselves not to cut corners in the proclamation of God's Word. We don't need to go out of our way to say anything, but we need to be faithful to the text, to preach God's Word faithfully such that we do not normalize single motherhood. We don't put it on a pedestal either. So we're embracing and welcoming and loving and calibrating ministry to help those in that situation, uh, those without husbands, those without fathers. But at the same time, not normalizing that situation by muting our emphasis on the vital need for fathers to exercise biblical responsibility and watch care over their homes. Are you with me here? You're kind of, you know, the lathers up and you're rising on Sunday morning and you're looking at somebody, you're looking at these men and saying, fathers, you need to take responsibility for your homes. You need to love your families. It is vital to your children that they have a father who loves and then pool. You look right in the eyes of a single mom. You look right in the eyes of a woman whose husband has died. And, and, the, and the temptation there can be to kind of back off so we don't hurt them. We don't hurt their feelings or something like that. I think we have to be really thoughtful along these lines. I think there's ways we can communicate grace and respect for them, but we cannot back away from the challenges of fatherhood and calling the church to see the importance of this role among us. We need to exercise compassion but refuse to shy away from the truth. And to preach God's word faithfully then by proclaiming the fatherhood of God boldly and winsomely. And here we have even less trouble in, in this group among us, but we, we recognize, I mean, there's a woman came to our church and she, she said, I've just had it with my church. She's really blunt. Uh, I love it. She's just a very frank person. But she said, I just had it at my church. And I kind of followed up and, well, what's going on? You know, and I'm expecting they did some policy change that ticked her off. She said, our pastor, she, on Sunday, she got up in front of our church and she said, let's, let's go to the Lord's Prayer. Our father, and she said, and then she paused and said, or mother, or whatever else you want to call him, she had the, 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 whatever she is, minister, said this. to the And this woman's as lost as the devil that was visiting our church, but, but she's like, that's wrong. <laughs> she is. I said, yeah, I think it is, uh, really. Uh, but we're not going to do that. I, I don't think we're going there to begin to change those pronouns. But in the world, that's... In the world we live in, that's very much an issue. Um, I watch, I write articles for our local paper sharing space with other, what do they call them? Faith ministries. They got something they can't call it church, but other churches, they're all churches, but uh, other than one. But it's interesting to watch as these authors write, they won't call God He. 
they did they just strategically work through I've been watching it and tracking it over some time but there's there's most of the authors will never refer to God as he or him and and, and I think in those situations what I, as I'm writing artists I'm going you know can I get around that no I'm going to say he and I think we need to have that courage to not be brought down by the world we're living in and intimidated by it, but to speak the truth and let it stand. God is our Father. We know God is not male in that sense, that He is spirit and that He is and, and the whole reality with Christ, which also qualifies how we think about it. We understand that. But we need to recognize that he is our father, to announce that he is our father, and not to back away ever from it, to not shy away from masculine pronouns or whatever it would be. And then, uh, I've got to quit with this, but just in building up men, biological fathers, we need to be teaching sexual fidelity. We need to be teaching one-woman man ethics teaching them to lead their homes and recognizing that if we're not doing this uh, systemically through the church's ministry, we're going to be seeing more and more fathers that really don't know what it means to be a father. We are seeing men who don't know what it means to be men. Um, I'm not going to judge all the specifics, but just a picture, star trib, front page, two fathers at a brewery with their little children. You see that picture? Because they're stay-at-home dads, but they're not staying at home. They're going to the brewery with their little ones in tow. Uh, I, I don't know all the facts, and I'm, I'm not judging these men as such because I don't know those facts. But, but here's a picture of our day. And I, I think those men come tripping into our church one day. There's a whole package of stuff that needs to be dealt with. It's what it means to be a man and what it means to be a father. And we can't back away from that and say, ah, oh, to each his own. I think we need to go at this in a right, redemptive way. Uh, we also need to build up spiritual fathers to lead churches as God has, intends to reach the fatherless, to give of our time and our resources and our wisdom to build up uh, young people in the faith. Um, and to do all of this without apology, to not apologize, but to recognize this is the father I know. Why would I not announce him to this world? Why would we not lead with God our Father? As Christ taught us to pray, we come to him in this way. And Father, we bow now and we thank you that you have revealed yourself as Abba. That all of these seven characteristics that we consider are bearing fruit in our life as you nurture us and relate to us, as you provide and protect and rebuke and correct and teach and love and listen, as you hear our prayers and nurture us in the faith. We thank you. We bow before you with gratitude that we cannot fully express that you have called us to yourself. You have chosen us as your sons. You have brought us into right relationship with you through Christ. We thank you and pray that we would minister faithfully as your servants to love people and to teach this world that you are our Father in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.